Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Chapter 3, The Letters from No One. The escape of the Brazilian boa constrictor earned Harry his longest ever punishment. By the time he was allowed out of his cupboard again, the summer holidays had started and Dudley had already broken his new video camera, crashed his remote control airplane, and, first time out on his racing bike, knocked down old Miss Fig as she crossed Privet Drive on her crutches. Harry was glad school was over, but there was no escaping Dudley's gang, who visited the house every single day. Piers, Dennis, Malcolm, and Gordon were all big and stupid, but as Dudley was the biggest and stupidest of the lot, he was the leader. The rest of them were all quite happy to join in Dudley's favorite sport, Harry hunting. Do you know where you are? I'm in an endless epic. And here there be Harry hunting and dragons and all dragons. of the above. At some point. Welcome back, wayward children, to Endless Epic. We are on chapter three of Harry Potter's Sorcerer's Stone escapade. Who knows what that's got anything to do with? Could be a Philosopher's Stone, could be a Sorcerer's Stone, just I guess depends on which side of the pond you're on. Right. <laughs> and uh, This one says Sorcerer's. Yeah, I think it's really hard to find the ones that say Philosopher's Stone now. I don't even know if the ones they sell over in Europe still say Philosopher's Stone. It was the first run over in England mm. that had Philosopher's Stone on it. And for some reason, they just assumed American audiences would be too dumb to recognize the alchemical relation there. So they changed it to Sorcerer's Stone. Which there is no alchemical connotation with Sorcerer's Stone. They're right, there's not. So it, it actually makes less sense to call it a Sorcerer's Stone. Agreed. Because the Philosopher's Stone is like a, an ancient alchemy thing. I, th I think the stories of the Philosopher's Stone go back like five, six hundred years. Right. Like to, to the earliest eras of of European and Indo-European alchemy, so it's what the entire uh, the entire foundation of uh, Full Metal Alchemist is based off of, actually. Right. Another boy who lived, <gasps> although he tried to kill himself, so that doesn't count exactly the same. <laughs> Alphonse and Edward Elric, not exactly a parallel to Harry Potter. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> okay, let's get back into it. <coughs> This was why Harry spent much of his time, as much of his time as possible, out of the house, wandering around and thinking about the end of the holidays, where he, would, where he could see a tiny ray of hope. When September came, he would be going off to secondary school, and for the first time in his life, he wouldn't be with Dudley. Dudley had been accepted to Uncle Vernon's old private school, Smeltings, Pierce Polkis was going there too. Harry, on the other hand, was going to Stonewall High, the local public school. Dudley thought this was very funny. They stuffed people's heads in toilets the first day at Stonewall, he told Harry. Want to come upstairs and practice? No thanks, said Harry. The poor toilets had... Never had anything as horrible as your head down it. It might be sick. 
Then he ran before Dudley could work out what he'd said. <laughs> Sounds like my siblings when they were younger. <laughs> I took, because I started university when I was 14. Mm -hmm. I took great pleasure in insulting people above their vocabulary level, mm -hmm. which is totally a petty and childish thing to do. But as a child, it's something that you rarely get the opportunity to do. And all the adults I grew up around were smarter than me. So when I went to college and everybody was dumber than I was, it was it was this weird sort of power struggle I had to deal with because I'm like most of these people are bigger than me, and probably wouldn't hesitate to uh, to hurt me. But at the same time, if I say it and then I get out of here, I can't say that I haven't done that. But usually I was doing it in a way where I knew they wouldn't realize I was insulting them. <laughs> so it was just kind of. For my own amusement. So it's always just the assassin version there, you Okay. One day in July, Aunt Petunia took Dudley to, to London to buy his smelting's uniform, leaving Harry and Mrs. Figg's. Mrs. Figg wasn't as bad as usual. It turned out she'd broken her leg tripping over one of her cats, and she didn't seem quite as fond of them as before. She let Harry watch television and gave him a bit of chocolate cake that tasted as though she'd had it for several years. Don't we all have like an old relative who has like cookies or something that tastes like they've had them since the 60s? And I feel like there's a lot of chocolate cake recipes where they just come out so dry and yeah. bland that you're like, I think I'm good. <laughs> so when I was a kid, my mom used to make and get German chocolate cakes. Mm -hmm. And they they always had like that dark chocolate icing on the outside, and then more like cream cheese chocolate ice icing in the middle, and the the bread it was so moist it was practically liquid like it was like pudding it was so moist, and you just you I've, I've I've since I was a kid I've not had a cake like that. It's the only way I'll eat cake is if it's really moist cake, because most people bake like that ridiculously dry like you got to have it with milk hard to swallow cake. And I, I don't, I, I can't, I, I don't like dry pastry, I like moist pastry. Agreed. Probably mm. triggering people with the word moist, but... Some of my family always wanted my grandma to make her German chocolate cake. And she made hers with coffee. With coffee in it. Was it good? Yeah, it was really good. They, it was on high demand for every holiday, but I didn't know that there was a version that had coffee in it, but it helped with making it not too sweet, I think. That's probably where your addiction to coffee came from. No. You grew up with coffee just being underlined in your pastries. <laughs> so pastries and coffee, it makes sense, the addiction like parallels. Maybe, I was never much of a cake person though. I've always been more of a pie guy, pie and cheesecake. Yeah, yeah, cheesecake for me. Uh, but I, I like, but I like like, filled but like not fruit pies like I like pumpkin pie mm -hmm. and I don't mind uh, like a meringue but most meringues are too sour like uh, it's just it's not a good balance well they usually put lemon in it yeah so I like the ones where it's not like somebody chopped up fruit and then baked the fruit especially since most of those pies are like I don't know why people don't skin their fruit before they put it into a pie some people make apple pies with I know this is a Harry Potter podcast but <laughs> so we would make apple pies with 
skin on the apples. I'm like, why would you do that? It ruins the whole texture consistency of the pie. Peach pie. Uh, cherry pie. Like. I think it's fine if you're putting slices on the top for like decoration purposes. Yeah, I, I give you that. But in the middle, you just ends up. It ends up with gooey, gooey bits of apple between like stringy, fleshy bits of apple skin. It's, just, it's a terrible consistency. I don't really pie. eat apple pie. No, you don't. Because you're very un-American, which is ironic because <laughs> I'm the immigrant. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I don't know why, but I don't like cooked apples. It's weird. Because I know, you're weird. un-American. You <laughs> lack patriotism. You need to go to war. Why is that? You need to go to war. That's fight for your country. True and then you'll patriotism come, you'll is eating back, apple pie. Then you'll come back and you'll like apple pie. Okay. You just need to stir your patriotic spirit. The same so thing. If like I get if you, starved of good food, if I'll you fight, end. if you fight for England, you like tea and crumpets. You get a nice like welling of tea and crumpets, and and being boring. Is a crumpet a, like a scone? Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's it, yeah, it's like a crumbly biscuit. Oh, okay. Yeah, but also people have different ideas of what a what a crumpet is. Like there are, and I don't mean like everybody has a different idea. I mean like there are different things that are considered to be a crumpet. It's like there are some cookies that are more better classified as a cracker mm. because they're closer to a consistency of a cracker than they are a cookie, but people still call them cookies because there's sugar in them. Mm, gotcha. It's the same thing with crumpets. Crumpets, like, they can be like those soft, um, those soft, squishy, like, angel cake ones. I can't remember what they're called, but they're like, they're like sweet and they're soft bread. But then you can also have like the crumbly ones that are closer to like, uh, like a breakfast biscuit. Gotcha. And some are kind of like cookies. Just kind of depends where you get them. <laughs> Another question for Marcus. Marcus, what's a crumpet? <laughs> to you, what do your family consider crumpets? The Patriots. <laughs> that evening, Dudley paraded around the living room. For the family in his brand new, no, we took too long talking about sweets. Shut off. <laughs> uh, for the family in his brand new uniforms, Smelting's boys wore maroon tailcoats, orange orange knickerbockers, and a flat straw hat called a boater. They also carried knobbly sticks used for hitting each other while the teachers weren't looking. This was supposed to be good training for later in life. Supposedly. <laughs> for beating your wife, I guess. I'm sorry, this is the family podcast. For knocking on doors. Naughty. That some people sometimes get black eyes on because they're standing there in the wrong place. Uh, as he looked at Dudley in his knickerbockers, Uncle Vernon said gruffly that it was the proudest moment of his life. Aunt Petunia burst into tears and said she couldn't believe she couldn't believe it, her duddy ickle duddykins. It was her duddy ickle dudleykins. Got it. He looked so handsome and grown up. Harry didn't trust himself to speak. He thought two of his ribs might have already been cracked from trying not to laugh. There was a horrible smell in the kitchen the next morning when Harry went down for breakfast. It seemed to be coming from a large metal tub in the sink. 
He went to have a look, and the tub was full of what looked like dirty rags swimming in grey water. What's this? he asked Aunt Petunia. Her lips tightened as they always did if he dared ask a question. Your new uniform. I'm going to tell you right now, everybody loved Shrill Petunia. <laughs> Liar. I'm not, I'm not even joking. <laughs> Great. Everybody loved Shrill Petunia. As a matter of fact, I'm going to put out a clip from Shrill Petunia oh, on TikTok why? so people can vote why? if they think it's an accurate portrayal of Petunia. Why do you hate me? <laughs> Alright, go ahead. Uh, did you? I did, I did. This is your new school uniform already. Shrill Petunia. But she's not being shrill right now. She's always shrill. She's defined by her shrillness. She was <laughs> <laughs> She said. Harry looked in the bowl again. Oh, he said. I didn't realize it had to be so wet. Don't be stupid snapped Aunt Petunia. I'm dying some of Dudley's old things grey for you. It'll look just like everyone else's when I finished. Shrill Petunia. Good lord, can you not? <laughs> can you? Give no, me I can't. You can. I, I know you can. I've heard you do it. Again. I've heard you do it. <laughs> I'm dying! No. Yes, come on. No. Give it to me. No. Yes! <laughs> Leave me alone. Perform. You do it. I'm dance, you dance, monkey. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's everybody's disliking the video. Okay. Did everybody downvotes. Dislike it. Downvotes. Mm-hmm. You can deal with it. <laughs> everybody, everybody came out for shrill petunia, and they got level-headed, classy petunia. Nobody wants level-headed, classy petunia. Exact opposite of the She needs to be in a state of being frantic when she's shrill. Which she always is. She's not. She's always crawling up Harry's anus. Because <laughs> that's better. Yeah. Family podcast, sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, Harry seriously doubted this, but thought it best not to argue. He sat down at the table and tried not to think about how he was going to look on his first day at Stonewall High. Like he was wearing a bit of old elephant skin, probably. Dudley and Vernon came in, both with wrinkled noses because of the smell from Harry's new uniform. Uncle Vernon opened his newspaper as usual, and Dudley banged his smelting stick, which he carried everywhere on the table. They heard the click from the mail slot and flop of the letters on the doormat. Get the mail, Dudley, said Uncle Vernon from behind his paper. Make Harry get it. Get the mail, Harry. Make Dudley get it. Poke him with your smelting stick, Dudley. <laughs> Harry dodged the smelting stick and went to get the mail. Three things lay on the doormat. A postcard from Uncle Vernon's sister Marge who was vacationing on the Isle of Wight, a brown envelope that looked like a bill, and a letter for Harry. Harry picked it up and stared at it, his heart twanging like a giant elastic band. No one ever in his whole life had written to him. 
Who would? He had no friends, no other relatives. He didn't belong to the library, so he'd never got any rude notes asking for books back. Yet here it was, a letter, addressed so plainly there could be no mistakes. Mr. H. Potter. The cupboard under the stairs, four privet drive, little whinging, Surrey. The envelope was thick and heavy, made of yellowish parchment, and the address was written in emerald green ink. There was no stamp. Turning the envelope, the envelope over, his hand trembling, Harry saw a purple wax seal bearing a coat of arms, a lion, an eagle, a badger, and a snake surrounding a large letter H. Hurry up, boy! shouted Uncle Vernon from the kitchen. What are you doing, checking for letter bombs? He chuckled at his own joke. Harry went back to the kitchen, still staring at his letter. He handed Uncle Vernon the bill and the postcard, sat down and slowly began to open the yellow envelope. Uncle Vernon ripped open the bill, snorted in disgust, and then flipped the postcard over. Marge is ill, he informed Aunt Petunia. Ate a funny wilk. Dad, said Dudley, suddenly. Dad, Harry's got a letter. Or Harry's got something. Sorry, it's going off of the movie. Uh, Harry was on the point of unfolding his letter, which was written in the same heavy parchment as the envelope when it was jerked sharply out of his hand by Uncle Vernon. That's mine, said Harry, trying to snatch it back. Who'd be writing to you? sneered Uncle Vernon, shaking the letter open with one hand and glancing at it. His face went from red to green faster than a set of traffic lights, and it didn't stop there. Within seconds, it was greyish-white of old porridge. Petunia! He, he gasped. Dudley tried to grab the letter and read it, but Uncle Vernon held it high out of his reach. Aunt Petunia took it curiously, read the first line. For a moment, it looked as though she might faint. She clutched her throat and made a choking noise. Vernon? Oh my goodness, Vernon! That's Petunia. That's what everybody came here for. No, she's not like that all, all the time. All the time. <laughs> Always! You, there, on the other side of the camera, or and or headphones, tell me, is that how Petunia should always be? It won't matter. It will. <laughs> we bend to their will, they're like magical. They leave yeah. comments and then we do as they say. They uh, Okay. They stared at each other, seeming to have forgotten that Harry and Dudley were still in the room. Dudley wasn't used to being ignored. He gave his father a sharp tap on the head with his smelting stick. I want to read that letter, he said loudly. I want to read it, said Harry furiously, as it's mine. Get out, both of you, croaked Uncle Vernon, stuffing the letter back in the envelope. Harry didn't move. I want my letter, he shouted. Let me see it demanded Dudley. Out! roared Uncle Vernon, 
He took both Harry and Dudley by the scruffs of their necks and threw them into the hall, slamming the kitchen door behind them. Harry and Dudley promptly had a furious but silent fight over who would listen at the keyhole. Dudley won, so Harry, with his glasses dangling from his ear, lay flat on his stomach to listen at the crack between the door and the floor. Vernon! And Petunia was saying in a quivering voice, Look at the address! How could they possibly know where he sleeps? You don't think they're watching the house? Watching? Spying? Might be following us, muttered Uncle Vernon wildly. But what should we do, Vernon? Should we write back? Tell them we don't want... Harry could see Uncle Vernon's shiny black shoes pacing up and down the kitchen. No, he said finally. No, we'll ignore it. If, if they don't get an answer, yes, that's the best. But we won't do anything. But... I'm not having one in this house, Petunia. Don't, didn't we swear when we took him in we'd stamp out that dangerous nonsense? That evening, when he got back from work, Uncle Vernon did something he'd never done before. He visited Harry in his cupboard. Where's my letter? Said Harry, the moment Uncle Vernon had squeezed through the door. Who's writing to me? No one. It was addressed to you by mistake, said Uncle Vernon shortly. I have burned it. It was not a mistake, said Harry angrily. It had my cupboard on it. Silence! yelled Uncle Vernon, and a couple of spiders fell from the ceiling. He took a few deep breaths and forced his face into a smile, which looked quite painful. Uh, yes, Harry, about this cupboard. Your aunt and I have been thinking. You're getting a bit big for it. We think it might be nice if you moved into Dudley's second bedroom. Why? said Harry. Don't ask questions! snapped un his uncle. Take this stuff upstairs now. The Dursley's house had four bedrooms, one for Uncle Vernon and Petunia, one for visitors, usually Uncle Vernon's sister Marge, and one where Dudley slept, and one where Dudley kept all the toys and things that wouldn't fit into his first bedroom. It only took Harry one trip upstairs to move everything he owned from the cupboard to this room. He sat down on the bed and stared around him. Nearly everything in here was broken. The month-old video camera was lying on top of a small, working tank Dudley had driven once, had once driven over the next-door neighbor's dog. In the corner was Dudley's first-ever television set, which he'd put his foot through when his favorite program had been cancelled. There was a large birdcage which had once held a parrot, that Dudley had swapped at school for a real air rifle, which was up on the shelf with the other end bent because Dudley sat on it. Other shelves were full of books. They were the only thing in the room that looked as though they'd never been touched. From downstairs came the sound of Dudley bawling at his mother. I don't want him in there. I need that room. Make him get out. Harry sighed and stretched out on the bed. Yesterday he'd have given anything to be up here. Today he'd rather be back in his cupboard with that letter than up here without it.
Next morning at breakfast, everyone was rather quiet. Dudley was in shock. He'd screamed, whacked his father with his smelting stick, been sick on purpose, kicked his mother, thrown his tortoise through the greenhouse roof, and he still didn't have his room back. Harry was thinking about this time yesterday and bitterly wished he'd opened the letter in the hall. Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia kept looking at each other darkly. When the mail arrived, Uncle Vernon, who seemed to be trying to be nice to Harry, made Dudley go and get it. They heard him banging things with his smelting stick all the way down the hall. Then he shouted, There's another one! Mr. H. Potter, smallest bedroom, four privet drive. With a strangled cry, Uncle Vernon leapt from his seat and ran down the hall, Harry right behind him. Uncle Vernon had to wrestle Dudley to the ground to get the letter from him, which was made difficult by the fact that Harry grabbed Uncle Vernon around the neck from behind, after minutes of confused fighting, in which everyone got hit by a lot of smelting stick, Uncle Vernon straightened up, gasping for breath, with Harry's letter clutched in his hand. Go to your cup I mean your bedroom he wheezed at Harry. Dudley, go just go. Harry walked round and round his new room. Someone knew he had moved out of his cupboard and they seemed to know he hadn't received the first letter. Suddenly, that meant they'd try again. Surely, that meant they'd try again. And this time, he'd make sure they didn't fail. He had a plan. So, I want to stop for just a second. This is, is one of the chapters that I have the most grievance with in the whole book. Why? Because it seems like there's a lot going on but there's there's like this is while this is entertaining it's it's a it's a, almost a waste of a chapter oh for sure because it builds a lot of it builds a lot on the characters of the dursleys which would be great if we experience anything with the dursleys after chapter three yeah i think three and four could have been combined into one yeah instead of getting dragged out well and this Again, like this whole this whole thing, yeah, this could have probably been about two pages shorter and they could have just melded it with the next chapter. Mm -hmm. But they don't. And <laughs> well, again, a lot of this is very funny. And in the movie, it's very funny. In the movie, this is a whole like three minutes worth of film. Like if even that. Maybe she just figured understanding the Dursleys more gives you a better understanding of Harry and the way he feels about them and how he must have grown up up until that point. Right. Before going off to, to Hogwarts and learning about the Wizarding World. Well, I, I don't know. And, and to me, it just feels like... Like the disdain for people who do witchcraft. Like I, I, I get it to a degree. But they treat it like... His family was like an ancient order of assassins or something, and they're trying to keep him away from it. Like it's something dark and evil and dirty inherently. Because they don't know anything about the Wizarding World. Like they don't know really how, uh, how Lily and James Potter died. They don't know anything about Voldemort or any of that. So their, their disdain for it is purely off of the basis that Lily was a wizard 
and Petunia wasn't. <laughs> right, but there's, you've seen even in history, anything that was considered magic or witchcraft in more recent century, then it was seen as a bad thing and the people that, that practiced it were, were villainized. So it makes sense that she would have them portrayed that way. Right, but this is like Petunia is her sister though. Yeah, but she, she had a grievance against her sister because she was the favorite. Right. So like her parents were super excited and proud that she was special. And so that took attention away from Petunia and Petunia was resentful. Right. Well, and again, but like the, the, the reaction to me feels off. Because like if there was a, a, an opportunity where they're like, oh, we're going to get rid of him. You'd think they'd jump at it, right? Because any opportunity that they have to not be around Harry, they take it. So it, it just feels kind of like backwards. Like if they were like, oh, we can send him to be with his own kind and we don't have to be with him anymore. Well, they still have guardianship over him, so they can't really just send him off to be with his own kind. And they didn't know he was magical. And they did know that his parents died because of something to do with the wizarding world. Right. So they consider it dangerous. And so they're like, we'll just keep them away from it. We don't want anything to do with that. But they're doing what they have to do because they're close, closest kin. Right. Okay, back into it. The repaired alarm clock rang at six o'clock. The next morning, Harry turned it off quickly, dressed silently. He mustn't wake the Dursleys. He stole downstairs without turning on any of the lights. He was going to wait for the postman on the corner of Privet Drive and get the letters for number four first. His heart hammered as he crept across the dark hall towards the front door. Arrgh! Harry leapt into the air. He trodden down on something big and squishy on the doormat, something alive. Lights clicked on upstairs, and to his horror, Harry realized that the big squishy something had been his uncle's face. Uncle Vernon had been lying at the foot of the front door in a sleeping bag, clearly making sure that Harry didn't do exactly what he'd been trying to do. He shouted at Harry for about half an hour, and then told him to go and make a cup of tea. Harry shuffled miserably off to the kitchen, and by the time he got back, the mail had arrived right into Uncle Vernon's lap. Harry could see three letters addressed in green ink. I want, he began, but Uncle Vernon was tearing the letters into pieces before his eyes. Uncle Vernon didn't go to work that day. He stayed at home and nailed up the mail slot. See, he explained to Aunt Petunia through a mouthful of nails. If they can't deliver them... They'll just give up. I'm not sure that'll work, Vernon. Oh, these people's minds work in strange ways, Petunia. They're not like you and me. Said Uncle Vernon, trying to knock in a nail with a piece of fruitcake Aunt Petunia had just brought him. Well, he's trying to pound in the nail with fruitcake. Yeah. What a weird detail to put I Well, I think they're trying. she was trying to portray he's getting like frazzled and kind of crazed about this. Oh, okay, okay, okay. 
just seems like they're making fun of Petunia's fruitcake. <laughs> uh, on Friday, no less than 12 letters arrived for Harry. As they couldn't go through the mail slots, they had been pushed under the door, slotted through the sides, and a few even forced through the small window in the downstairs bathroom. Uncle Vernon stayed home again. After burning all the letters, he got out a hammer and nails and boarded up the cracks around the front and back doors so that no one could go out. He hummed tiptoe through the tulips as he worked and jumped at small noises. See, that portrays that he's going crazy. Right, because stuff like that song seemed to get used for like horror films all the time. Right. To kind of like have Which this... is weird. Why is it that these like old timey happy-go-lucky songs... I think they do it for contrast. I suppose. Because they it makes it extra creepy when you hear something so like jaunty and jovial alongside something you know is expressing horror. Because like now every time I hear Jeepers Creepers it right. automatically like relates me back to those movies. Right. It's become creepy because yeah. Yeah, yeah this weird but But yeah, tiptoe to the window or whatever. Yeah. What was that one in? One of the movies for like the conjuring or something? Probably. It's also been all over TikTok, so that's all I think of. <laughs> Is the remix that they did on TikTok. But yeah, anyway, he's clearly going crazy. <laughs> right. On Saturday, things began to get out of hand. 24 letters to Harry found their way into the house, rolled up and hidden inside each of two dozen eggs that the very confused milkman had handed Aunt Petunia through the living room window, while Uncle Vernon made furious phone calls to the post office and the dairy trying to find out trying to find someone to complain to, and Petunia shredded the letters in her food processor. Who on earth wants to talk to you this badly? Dudley asked Harry in amazement. On Sunday morning, Uncle Vernon sat down at the breakfast table, looking tired and rather ill, but happy. No post on Sunday, he reminded them cheerfully, as he spread marmalade on his newspapers. No damn letters today. Something came whizzing down the chimney as he spoke and caught him sharply on the back of the head. The next moment, 30 or 40 letters came pelting out of the fireplace like bullets. The Dursleys ducked, but Harley leapt into the air trying to catch one. Out! Out! Uncle Vernon seized Harry around the waist and threw him into the hole. When Aunt Petunia and Dudley had run out with their arms over their faces, Uncle Vernon slammed the door shut. They could hear the letters, still streaming into the room, bouncing off the walls and floor. That does it, said Uncle Vernon, trying to speak calmly but pulling great tufts out of his moustache at the same time. I want you all back here in five minutes, ready to leave. We're going away. Just pack some clothes, no arguments. Do you mean the aggressive tone is bound to aggravate your throat? Well, that, that throaty cockney is what does it to me. Mm. Uh, almost made me an appropriate joke. 
He looked so dangerous with half his moustache missing that no one dared argue. Ten minutes later, they had wrenched their way through the boarded-up doors, were in the car speeding towards the highway. Dudley was sniffling in the back seat. His father had hit him round the head for holding them up while trying to pack his television, VCR, and computer into his sports bag. They drove and they drove. Even Aunt Petunia didn't ask where they were going. Every now and then, Uncle Vernon would take a sharp turn and drive in the opposite direction for a while. Shake him off! Shake him off! He would mutter whenever he did this. They didn't stop to eat or drink all day. By nightfall, Dudley was howling. He'd never had such a bad day in his life. He was hungry, he'd missed five television programs he'd wanted to see, and he'd never gone so long without blowing up an alien on his computer. Uncle Vernon stopped at last outside of a gloomy-looking hotel on the outskirts of a big city. Dudley and Harry shared a room with twin beds and damp, musty sheets. Dudley snored, but Harry stayed awake, sitting on the windowsill, staring at the lights of passing cars and wondering. They ate stale cornflakes and cold tinned tomatoes for breakfast the next day. They had just finished when the owner of the hotel came over to their table. Excuse me, but is one of you Mr. H. Potter? We've got a hundred of these at the desk at the front desk for you. She held. Oh, that was that's a girl. I'm not sure how do you do that? Well, we didn't know. She held up. She held up a letter so they could read the green inked address. Mister H. Potter, Room Seventeen, Railview Hotel, Cokeworth. Harry made a grab for the letter, but Uncle Vernon knocked his hand away, and the woman stared. I'll take them said Uncle Vernon, standing up quickly and following her from the dining room. Wouldn't it just be better to go home, dear? Aunt Petunia suggested timidly hours later, but Uncle Vernon didn't seem to hear her. Exactly what he was looking for, none of them knew. He drove them into the middle of a forest, got out, looked around, shook his head, got back in the car, and off they went again. Same thing happened in the middle of a ploughed field and halfway across a suspension bridge and at the top of a multi-level parking garage. Daddy's gone mad, hasn't he? Dudley asked Aunt Petunia Dolly late that afternoon. Uncle Vernon had parked at the coast, locked them all inside the car and disappeared. It started to rain. Great drops beat on the roof of the car and Dudley sniffled. It's Monday, he told his mother. The great Humberto's on the night. I wanted to stay home. I want to stay somewhere with a television. Monday. This reminded Harry of something. It was Monday. And you could usually count on Dudley to know the days of the week because of television. And tomorrow, Tuesday, was Harry's 11th birthday. Of course, his birthdays were never exactly fun. Last year, the Dursleys had given him a coat hanger and a pair of Uncle Vernon's old socks. Still, you weren't eleven every day. A coat hanger and a pair of old socks. 
like at a certain point you have to like question whether or not what you're writing is just silly because at that point they probably just wouldn't give him anything well like, she was being silly i i know but like obviously she's inspired by by works like by roald dahl right right like which is silly and he did it in such a way where like that silliness was readily accepted this is too spotty though like it only huh? comes out in certain ways like it, it, it's one thing to illustrate, like, they just gave him a pair of Uncle Vernon's old socks. But a Kodak was a Kodak. I don't know. She, I think she was just trying to capture that same essence. <laughs> it's, it just, it, especially with everything we've just read, it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit in. But, all right, moving on. Uh, Uncle Vernon was back and he was smiling. He was also carrying a long, thin package and didn't answer Petunia when she asked what he'd bought. Found the perfect place, he said. Come on, everyone out. It was very cold outside of the car. Uncle Vernon was pointing at what looked like a large rockway at sea. Perched on top of the rock was the most miserable little shack you could imagine. One thing was certain. There was no television in there. Storm forecast for tonight, said Uncle Vernon gleefully, clapping his hands together. And this gentleman's kindly agreed to lend us his boat. A toothless old man came ambling up to them, pointing with a rather wicked grin at an old rowboat bobbing in the iron grey water below them. For he got us some rations? said Uncle Vernon. So all aboard! It was freezing in the boat. Icy sea spray and rain crept down their necks, and a chilly wind whipped their faces. After what seemed like hours, they reached the rock where Uncle Vernon, slipping and sliding, led the way into the broken-down house. Inside was horrible. It smelled strongly of seaweed. The wind whistled through the gaps in the wooden walls, and the fireplace was damp and empty. There were only two rooms. Uncle Vernon's rations turned out to be a bag of chips and four bananas. He had tried to start a fire with the empty chip bag, but smoked. But the empty chip bags... Oh, a bag of chips each and four bananas. Got it. He tried to start a fire with the empty chip bags, but the empty chip bags smoked and shriveled up. Could do with some of those letters now, eh? He said cheerfully. He was in a very good mood. Obviously, he thought nobody stood a chance of reaching them here in a storm to deliver mail. Harry privately agreed, though he thought, though the thought didn't cheer him up at all. As night fell, the promised storm blew up around them. Spray from the high waves splattered the walls of the hut and a fierce wind rattled the filthy windows. Aunt Petunia found a few mouldy blankets in the second room and made up a bed for Dudley on the moth-eaten sofa. She and Vernon went off to the lumpy bed next door, and Harry was left to find the softest bit of floor he could and curl up under the thinnest, most ragged blanket. The storm raged more and more ferociously, and the night went on. Harry couldn't sleep. 
He shivered and turned around, trying to get comfortable, his stomach rumbling with hunger. Dudley's snores were drowned by the low rolls of thunder that started near midnight. The lighted dial of Dudley's watch, which was dangling over the edge of the sofa, on his fat wrist, told Harry he'd be eleven in ten minutes' time. He lay and watched his birthday tick nearer, wondering if the Dursleys would remember it all, wondering where the letter writer was now. Five minutes ago, Harry heard something creak outside. He hoped the roof wasn't going to fall in, although it might be warmer if it did. Four minutes to go. Maybe the house in Privet Drive would be so full of letters when they got back, he'd be able to steal one somehow. Three minutes to go. Was that the sea slapping hard against the rocks like that? And two minutes to go. What was that funny crunching noise? Was the rock crumbling into the sea? One minute to go, he'd be eleven. Thirty seconds. Twenty. Ten. Nine. Maybe he'd wake Dudley up just to annoy him. Three. Two. One. Boom! The whole shack shivered and Harry sat bolt upright staring at the door. Someone was outside, knocking to come in. And so ends chapter three of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So, with as slow as that chapter was, one thing that they did make a little more fun in the movie was all of the owls. Yes. Right, like you don't get any of that in the chapter but after you've read the book, you would be safe to assume... Yeah, you realize that all of the letters being sent would have to be by owls. Right. So, I liked that at least in the movie, they made it more fun by having all these owls everywhere to Well, and they didn't Well, and they didn't do anything. So, like, like they, they cut out the motel in the movie, and they cut out the restaurant. It was unnecessary. Yeah, it's just too much. And that's part, of the, that's part of my grievance. The first bits in the home, and then the bit on the rock, fine. Even the bit in the home is a little bit too drawn out. Vernon probably would have been fed up after two days of it. It would probably would not have taken him a whole week to get fed up with it, given how, how hot-headed he is. So they didn't need to make it that long. Like, she didn't need to make it this long. The only bit of this chapter I like is the end. Like, this final... Uh, it's broken down three paragraphs. Starting with five minutes to go, Harry heard something creak outside. Like... This is a brilliant usage of like internal dialogue to count down to an external climax. Like this is really, really well done. I like it a lot. I thought the camera shut off. <laughs> just looks like you randomly glared at it. <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm just. Are you paying attention, you twats? Uh, <laughs> but this is this is a trope that we don't get to see often in books, especially children's books. Like you'll see it in, uh, there's a couple of times where they do, where Tolkien did something like this in Lord of the Rings, where he used like the internal dialogue of a character to lead up to an external climax. And it just, it's so nice. Like it, it's such a, a brilliant way to meld the internal world of the character with the external world of what's happening around them. And she did really well with these three, four paragraphs. The rest of the chapter is basically a waste, but this is really good. 
And I, I, I like, I like the chapter because of what it does to to build up the the whimsy of the world. Because how the hell is somebody going to deliver you a hundred letters to a place that you've just moved? Well, and to know where, like right. which room you're in when you've gone to a motel, and then right. Now, like, obviously the readers are expecting, like, somehow these letters are going to show up at this island. Right. And, and the, the, so that, that aspect with the, the constantly changing address and then this build up with the, the boom on the outside of the house is a nice climax. However, breaking it up by chapter is unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We'll have another one ready to go in a week. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because that's that's really all we. Unless you have something else you want to talk about for the chapter. Nope, that's it. So the next chapter is actually one of the best chapters in the book, in my opinion. Um, I think that Harry getting to meet the character who he meets in the next chapter is probably one of the. I think so. Chapter four, five, and six are the three singular best chapters in the book because of the relationships that are built in those chapters. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that four is one of the better chapters, but definitely five. I may not be remembering exactly what happens in four, but... Oh, because it, it, it ends it ends with him. It, it ends before they leave, right? It's just the conversation between him and her. Okay, yeah, you're right, five. Chapter five is one of the best chapters right, in the book. Right, right. That's when things really get exciting. Right. So. But there, there's a lot of great dialogue and character interaction in Chapter 4. Right. But, but again, 3 and 4 definitely could have been, been condensed down into one chapter. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, they're way too long for, for, what, for what little for what they add to the story. For what transpires, yeah. I agree with that for sure. <laughs> all right. So, quick shout out to all of our patrons. Thank you guys so much for all of the support over on Patreon. Uh, for those of you watching the video podcast, there will be some illustrations that are being provided um, in the video from the book that we are reading from. Uh, and obviously you'll get to see our beautiful faces as well. Uh, you didn't have a lot of dialogue this time around. Yeah, it was Which means you almost owed them I shrill I think Petunia. it was really <laughs> focused on Harry's Uncle Vernon yeah. really struggling um, and, you know, kind of losing his mind and Harry getting frustrated and excited that he's finally got something for him and obviously he's never gotten that before. Right. Like, no one's cared about him, he's, nobody's ever been attentive to him, which is obviously something she was explaining with the gifts that he's gotten on previous birthdays, like... So, I will say that, that uh, so you, you're right, the, the, there's one other sentence that really nicely illustrates Harry's destitution and that's when he says that yesterday he would have given anything to be up in this bedroom mm -hmm. but today he'd give anything just to have the letter and be back in his cupboard right so like how starved he is for any sort of human interaction because because we we know that he's well, positive uncle, but well because we we don't his aunt and uncle don't treat him like a person yeah they treat him like he is an animal so to have to have a person care enough to write something to him, even like he 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 even contrasts it to getting a rude letter from the library, mm -hmm. like even that to him 
is more of a positive thing than the way that he interacts daily with his aunt and uncle and his cousin. And that gives us a really good idea for like how starved Harry is for any kind of positive interaction with anyone. Right. And uh, it's just, it's, it's a really good illustration though it, there, there are some broken bits with it because she tells us like, oh, he's had random strangers for months who stop him on the street and talk to him. So like, he's experienced kindness and that kind of breaks the meta a little bit mm-hmm. in the way of like, oh, he never has any sort of kindness or caring towards him, but he's had random kind strangers. So that bit, I think she could have left out that people recognize him in the streets. And it would have made the gravitas of this moment in this chapter feel bigger. Well, I think it would have... I think the random people recognizing him is fine because you want to understand that there are still people in the Wizarding World that know who he is. Which we get a lot of that in, in the Leaky Cauldron and Diagon Alley. Right, but that's not until later. This is the, like, the preemptive bits to kind of like plant a little seed in your head so to really drive it home I think it would have been better to explain why he wasn't able to get those interactions at school because obviously he went to school Mm -hmm. but if he wasn't getting any positive interactions at school then we could assume that maybe the teachers were kind of adopting the parents way of looking at him and if he was going to school with Dudley, Dudley was making it impossible for him to make friends because he was a bully. And right. he could have bo- like bullied others into like, don't, don't be friends with him or just kind of kept an eye on it. But those are all inferences that you have to make based off of the information that she's giving. So it would have been better if she had expanded on that rather than take away the factor that there are, there are people of the wizarding world that we don't know yet that they're from the Wizarding World, recognize who he is. Right. And want to so, come up to him. Okay, so yeah, I see what you're saying. And I, I feel like then if, if she was going to keep those interactions in, there needed to be a better, like maybe another chapter in the comparison contrast of his interactions at schools and in his daily life with other people who interact with the Dursleys. Right, I, it didn't even need to be another chapter. She had just put in a little bit more of the notes because obviously we get the neighbor, we like his interactions with the neighbor, right, yeah. Mrs. Fig. Which is a very small thing, but she doesn't go into what, what school life was like. Mm-hmm. Which I think she ends up addressing in another book. Um, so the, it ends up being talked about a little bit more in the second book. And then much, much, much later in Deathly Hollows. Mm. Like significantly later in Deathly Hollows. Right. Which is kind of weird, but you know, it, she was just having fun when she was writing this, and this is obviously would have been well before she, it kind of blew up, and she had to think about things differently. Right. So you can still just enjoy it for what it is. There were some things that could have been tweaked to make it a little bit better to illustrate what was going on. And and, and I want to reemphasize as well. I don't have a problem with Harry Potter as a series. I have a problem with the fandom claiming that it's one of the best written series of all time. Right, because it's not. It's not. Right. That's my only issue with it. I agree. It's whimsical. It's cute. It's got a lot of fun things in it. Mm -hmm. Not one of the best written series of all time. 
No. There's an entire podcast of people who literally built a career off of claiming that it's the best written series of all time. It's not. It has some strong points in that these these books grow with a, a young child that is starting right. middle school all throughout high school. Like it is it is perfect to start these books at 11, 10 or 11, right? And then to go on from there as, as the child grows up. And so it was perfect for that frame of time. But it wasn't, uh, it's not, I'm not going to say it's not well written, like she did a good job, but it is by far not the best <laughs> well, written. It's just a really, really fun And especially, world. especially and in the first three books, there's a lot of redundancies in the writing, which is another thing I take issue with. And again, like it's a children's book. Well, so you'd think that an editor would catch those things. You'd think, but they like editors, because I have some experience with editors from when I was trying to get my books published, mm -hmm. and it's an awful. The publishing world is terrible. But the the editors, like finding a good editor, is incredibly difficult. The editors provided by the two companies that I was trying to get published through were awful. Like. They they sent me back manuscripts with more grammar issues than there were in there when I sent them in. Like stuff that I could clearly tell was wrong. So you have to be your own editor. <laughs> more or less. Like unless you unless you find somebody who's really good at it. And there are people nowadays, like you can find people online who are excellent editors. Like there are people on YouTube who do it professionally, um, who like advise on world building and, and do editing for scripts and manuscripts that are really good at it, but the ones back then that were provided through publishing It was companies. someone hired through a publishing company yeah. who was limited. Yeah. Which and is why getting published was also limited. Right. Now you can self-publish your stuff. So you can find an editor on your own, see the work that they've done, and pay them directly, and then you can self-publish your stuff. It's kind of nice. Right. Also, there's a lot more books out there that you might buy and read and wonder why it got published but <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's okay. nice to be able to have a little more freedom because having to go through a publishing company that's going to be looking over hundreds and thousands of manuscripts that people send in and then they take advantage of those writers right well right? that's they why don't... I didn't end up getting published because the first place that I tried to get published through they wanted they were going to give me, I think it was like three or four percent of all profit from the novel for the lifetime of it being sold to them. Three percent. Three percent. Wow. And then the second time it was, a, I was signing with them for a series and they were going to give me 14 percent over the lifetime of the series. And they included a clause for potential films, which I would have only gotten four percent of. And so basically, <laughs> keep that in mind um, the next time you are looking at self-publishing on Amazon and, and complaining about how much they take out. Right. <laughs> and admittedly, like, an upgrade. like all, all, both publishing companies, like they had promotional campaigns planned and like all right. of that stuff. Of so course, clearly there's three, something to be put into but it. But 3%? Yeah. Well, the first time I tried to get published, I was, I was 12. So I, I had a 300-page manuscript that I sent in, 
and uh, and I did it like free of my parents. Like I grew because I graduated high school at thirteen. So like and at twelve, I was in my second year of high school. So I, I wasn't like a like a typical twelve year old. Like I knew some stuff about like business and writing and all of that stuff because the experience I'd had up to that point. So when I sent it in, and then they sent it back to me. I'm just assuming that because they sent me an offer, they assumed because I was 12, I was just going to be like, oh yeah, sure, and sign it because they said, yeah, we'll publish your book. And that I wouldn't read the 40-page the contract they sent back to me. But I did, and I called them, and I was like, it says that you guys are only going to give me 3%. And they were like, well, yeah, that's, that's typical. I was like, but 3% for the lifetime of the book? What if it does really well and you guys make, you know, a significant amount of your money back then if this if this whole series makes And and this is specifically just the profits. Yeah. Like obviously the expenses for the marketing and the production is getting covered. It's just the profits. So every hundred dollars that, that is made, you get three. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. That's ridiculous. Well and then and then No all... wonder writers were poor. Well, yeah, and I know exactly. Like, it's like it, it's, you can't even make money with it. Well, and what I found out later that I didn't know when I rejected the first offer was that they decide what profit is. It has nothing to do with expenses. Those contracts, they decide what the profit margin is. So they can set aside what are called predicted expenses, mm -hmm. which can make up 90% of what the profit was. And then the profit is only... 10% of what the profit was. So that $100 in profit was actually only $10 in profit. So my what I would have made would have been 30 cents. That's crazy. Yeah. So, uh, and obviously that's not, that, that's not how it is for every single publisher. This is the two publishers I tried to go through, whose names I won't mention because I don't know if they can sue me for that, but. <laughs> but still, that's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it was. And shouldn't be okay. But you know, that's why also people hire lawyers for that stuff too. Right. But now you can self-publish. That's the point. Right. That's the point. <laughs> well, and there's a lot. There are a lot of uh, people because the majority of what gets published through publishing companies, it's just the the stuff that is they know will will sell on a bare minimum. Like that's why there's so much garbage that gets published. Because they're like, this hits the bare minimum of what we need that we know people buy and read. And that's why they publish just like 90% trash. That's like the bread and butter. But they look for whales like Christopher Poloni, where they're like, wow, this is exceptionally well written. The story's well built. Like when they get stuff like that, they try to negotiate those contracts to where they make a higher level of profit than they do on the trash. Mm -hmm. Because they know, hey, this has a huge potential to be something massive and uh, they, at the very least they at least know when they get something quality one of the publishing companies continued to mail email me about the book for like six years after I rejected the offer and I, I never responded to any of it but they, they were sending me letters for, for six years afterwards it's crazy are you going to give me more? That was my most obsessive breakup ever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Again, thank you, patrons, for for everything that you do. 
For those of you who are subscribed to the podcast, you are beasts. Thank you for listening every week. Here with us, um, you should be, by the time you're hearing this episode, you should be getting one episode a week of Harry Potter and one episode a week of The Witcher, Dark Tales, Monday and Friday. Uh, with that being said, thank you guys so much for joining us as we turn the page into the tales and world of Harry Potter. And uh, until next time, stay bloodthirsty, my friends, and remember... All hail the Black Dragons. And we'll see you guys in the next story. Bye-bye. Tell them we were going to make Harry Potter-inspired stuff. Oh, we're going to make Harry Potter-inspired stuff. What stuff are we making? Well, we're starting with the wood stickers. Oh, so if you want to get your house, your house wood sticker, a, wood, a sticker made of wood <laughs> for your house, oh, um, like the, the Hufflepuff. So we got all of that stuff. We, we, we make them actually in this room that we're mm -hmm. sitting in. Um, and then we're, we're going to make a t-shirt as well, for those of you that want to rock some endless epic Harry Potter merchandise. So, look out for that. And yeah, we'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.